You're listening to Avid Research, an Australian STEM podcast where we answer the questions that you quite possibly never got around to asking. My name's Amelia. Welcome to Avid Research, where we are recording a very special National Science Week episode. Today we have a complete delight. We've got Natalie uh, joining us for one of our very first interviews. Not only is she a master reef guide, but she's also a research diver. Now, they sound like two incredibly awesome things to me. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you so much, Amelia. This, this should be a pretty interesting episode. I was wondering if you could just start with a little bit about yourself and what on earth those two awesome titles actually mean you get to do. Yeah, sure. So um, Master Reef Guides, uh, where it's a program created for tourism guides on the Great Barrier Reef. And basically, it's a program, um, a recognition program, um, and also an initiative to share the wonders of the Great Barrier Reef World Heritage Area with the world. So Basically, it's all about not just being a reef guide, but also being an interpreter and a storyteller and really bringing the reef to life with engaging and entertaining and especially educational experiences to really make visitors' expectations not only met, but uh, really exceed them and give them this incredible time on the Great Barrier Reef that they're going to remember, but also go home to wherever they might live in the world and perhaps change some little things about their lives in a positive way that could make a difference. So that's the Master Reef Guide program. The research diver work, that's with a company called Blue Planet Marine and we work with the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, which is the management authority for the Great Barrier Reef, to manage Crown of Thorns starfish on on the reef. Basically, uh, it involves doing a little bit of research and species control. So we do on-ground control of the crown of thorn starfish, which is a coral-eating starfish, where we work with the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park to uh, do research and control the populations. I'd forgotten about those little challenging creatures. (laughs) Yeah, they're they're spiky little suckers. (laughs) Yeah, ah. Do you want to tell people just a little bit about Crown of Thorns and how they came to be on the Great Barrier Reef? Because I'm pretty sure that's kind of an interesting story. Yeah, it is a pretty interesting story, actually. And it's funny that you say how they came to be on the reef because they're actually naturally found on the Great Barrier Reef. It's their home and they're not invasive. So usually we'll refer to an invasive species as, for example, something that comes in the ballast water or uh, the water in a ship that gets kind of contained underneath in the hull it moves from country to country or ocean to ocean and then gets released in the new place and might have you know the larvae or some kind of biological bits of a critter or the critter itself and releases it into a new ecosystem where they have no predators and they can go absolutely crazy that would be an invasive or an introduced species Um, whereas the crown of thorns starfish on the great barrier reef they're naturally found there. It's their home. Um, But the problem is it's arisen because we've fished out a lot of their natural predators. 
their uh, extra nutrient loads, which can cause them to reach outbreak proportions as well as upwelling and things like that just really favour the proliferation of the populations of crown of thorns starfish. And yeah, I guess the combination of all of those mostly human-induced activities have meant that the populations have gotten to a level that's out of control. And when I say out of control, we call it an outbreak proportion when there are too many crown of thorns thorn starfish per area to the point where coral growth and recovery can't keep up with how much is being eaten. Yeah, basically, they're, they're naturally found on the reef, but it's become a problem largely because of uh, human activities and, and what we're actually doing to throw the balance of the whole ecosystem out. Yeah, for sure. So it's more that things are completely out of balance rather than that someone unwelcome has come that we need to get rid of. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's a really good way to put it. My suspicion is that that would actually be more challenging to manage than an invasive species because you can't just go and like eradicate them all. You don't actually want to get rid of them. You just want to reintroduce balance. Absolutely. Yeah. So the the goal with the program is not to eradicate the species entirely. They're naturally found there. So we want to not kill absolutely all of them, but we want to get them down to a level that's sustainable from a natural ecosystem perspective so that the coral has enough time to recover rather than being eaten at a rate where it can't. So I think it's a couple of individuals per hectare is a healthy proportion. Um, And as soon as as it goes above that, then it becomes unsustainable from a natural ecosystem perspective. So yeah, it's really about just keeping the numbers low and reducing the outbreaks, not eradicating the species completely. Mm. Which from a management perspective is quite a challenging thing to do. I imagine. It is super challenging. Yeah, it's real it's really hard, especially for these kind of critters. They're mostly nocturnal, so they love hiding underneath ledges during the day, and sometimes they're not so easy to find. So you might think that you've gotten a certain number or a certain proportion of them, but there can be a whole lot of them hiding or in places where you can't see or you don't expect. It's really hard to know exactly how many are on the reef and the reef is such a huge ecosystem as well that it's very hard to follow the species on that kind of geographical scale you know the great barrier reef spans from lady elliot island in the most southern part of the great barrier reef all the way up into the torres strait and it goes over 2300 kilometers up the coast and that's just length not even area it's a huge 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 challenge to not only monitor, but yeah, figure out those control levels and how we're actually getting it down and how we know what the numbers are actually down to as well. It's a huge effort. Yes, that sounds very complicated and like big. And I think there's also, you can't understate the fact that adding water to any kind of monitoring, any kind of controlling of things, just doing these things in the ocean is extra challenging. Yeah, of course. Uh, I guess, yeah, whenever you're doing something in the water, you know, land conservation can often be a little easier, for lack of a better word, but everything is visually in front of you. And, um, you know, you can use satellite images and technology like that to see where some invasive plants or animals might be. But underwater, that's really hard. (laughs) 
and it's not necessarily right in sight and it's quite hard to survey and especially for the crown of thorns that there's no way that you could see a crown of thorns from a satellite image it's just you might be able to see crown of thorns damage if there's some white coral left behind but then you would have to really look on the ground or underwater and check if it was actually crown of thorns or it might be bleaching or another impact or disease or predation from another creature that eats coral so yeah, it's it's very hard. And the fact that it's on the water just adds that extra element. Yeah. And it also means it's harder to communicate your findings as well to people because I feel like everything underwater is just a little bit more alien to people and you've got a little bit extra effort to communicate what it is you're doing and the challenge that you're facing. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So yeah, then it comes back to that same idea that everything's underwater. So it's kind of not just difficult to understand, but it's also out of mind. So to take that abstract world for someone that hasn't seen it or hasn't experienced it and then explain what's going on and the issue and how it's being managed and whether or not it's successful is is really challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes it kind of fun too. And I think this would be a really good point to plug that when things are a bit more open and we've got more opportunities to travel, if you do have the chance to go to the Great Barrier Reef, you really should. It's genuinely mind-blowing. It's genuinely awesome. It's everything that they advertise and more, I would say. Yeah, it's it's just such an incredible ecosystem. Like I said, on that geographical scale, just its size is really mind-blowing. But then you can go down to the level of one reef or even one coral colony and there are certain things about it that can just blow your mind and, and you know, you might just dive one particular site or snorkel a particular site and it's really eye-opening and if you haven't popped your head underwater and seen that before, it's really like going into another world. And, yeah, once the restrictions start easing, I would definitely recommend everybody to go and discover your own backyard and check out the Great Barrier Reef and keeping in mind as well that it's not just one trip. I've been working on the Southern Great Barrier Reef for a few years now and it's just one one little area so you have reefs all the way up the east coast of Australia and they're all diverse they're different they change as the physical conditions and the geographical location changes as well so yeah there's just so much to explore and it's just a huge incredible diverse natural ecosystem that everyone should see at least once in their life at least definitely coming back to the fact that you actually get to work in this environment that so many people only if they're lucky, they get to visit once. You actually get to work there every day. What is it that you do on a day-to-day basis? Like what does an average day at work look like for you? Yeah, so when I'm working as a research diver, usually we will wake up pretty early in the morning. We'll have some briefings for the day. So the team leader or the voyage leader will talk about our activities and the plan for the day. They'll decide which reefs we'll be diving and whether we'll be diving or snorkeling them as well. We'll have a safety overview. So we will review the things to be mindful of for the day, the risks involved, and just, yeah, linking like the safety and the risk with those activities is super important just to set us in the right mind frame. And then we'll head out for our first dive about 7 30 8 o'clock in the morning could be a culling dive so when we're culling we have uh, scuba gear or we might be in just snorkel gear and do a snorkel cull and we have a little bottle with vinegar in it and something like a little spear gun attached that we use to inject the crown of thorns with vinegar um, which is how we do the on-ground control so we're either doing the culling or we might be doing research so 
there are two research methods that we use. We use a Reef Health and Impact Survey, which is a citizen science program that belongs to Eye on the Reef, developed by the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority. And that basically looks at the reef health. So we're looking at coral cover, macroalgae cover, disease, do those surveys in a particular area or at certain GPS points. And um, we can also do research via manta towing, which is pretty interesting and really fun. Um, You're basically getting dragged behind a boat with a little board with a research sheet on it, and we're collecting information on the reef health as well. So we're looking at live coral cover and whether it's hard coral, soft coral, any scars from crown of thorns, starfish eating the coral, and if we see any actual crown of thorns, starfish as well. And then if there are impacts such as bleaching, we'll usually note that down as well and try and work out percentage covers or percentage of the transect that we've just towed to um, mark down and record as data for the day. Usually we'll do between three or four dives or snorkel sessions per day that last at least an hour, sometimes more each, depending on which activity we're doing. And then when we get back to the boat, we usually have uh, some equipment maintenance or we might uh, record all of the data. And then at the end of the day, we're doing data entry. So we enter everything that we've found for the day, whether it's from the reef health surveys or the number of crown of thorns that we've culled per dive. So we're entering all of that into apps on on an iPad and that information goes straight through to the Great Bay Reef Marine Park Authority and they use that to basically analyse the work that we're doing and keep track of how the crown of thorns starfish populations are doing in that particular area that we work in. So yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's a lot of detail and lots of things happen in the course of a day. They're pretty long days. It's usually between 10 and 12 hours on average. So they're pretty long and very physical. So quite exhausting, but really fun. So is this like a Monday to Friday kind of job where you go out every day on the boat or? That's a great question. So actually we go out for 13 days at a time. The basic roster is two weeks on and two weeks off. So we'll head on out to sea for a voyage and we stay out at sea for close to two weeks. And we're diving and working every day for those two weeks. And then when we get back, we have our break or our time off. So yeah, each day can be super exhausting, but then when you build it up one after another um, without any breaks over those two weeks, it can be pretty tiring as well. So you have to stay super healthy and hydrated and be really mindful of your health and safety and also your exhaustion levels because yeah it can it can get pretty tiring but it's really fun work so it's worth it yeah it sounds sounds kind of intense and awesome and having had the privilege of being on a couple of research vessels myself like it's exhausting while you're out there but it's also incredibly invigorating and yeah, it's a privilege to have that opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah, it's. I think there are such specific skill sets as well. Not everybody can do it. I feel really, really lucky and really privileged to be able to do this kind of work because it's definitely not your everyday job, that's for sure. No, and I imagine when you do get to talk to people about what you do, there'll be a little bit of jealousy, I imagine. But you get to spend your days like actually on the Great Barrier Reef diving. How lucky can you be? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. I spent pretty much all day in the water. And yeah, we're, we're doing a lot of work, but we're also diving and doing this research on what I've seen as some of the most beautiful locations and the most beautiful reefs in the world, <laughs> let alone on the, on the Great Barrier Reef. So yeah, it's pretty special in that way. What are some of the skills that you need to be able to do your job well? Uh, well, as a starting point, you definitely need to be a good diver. The minimum level is either a dive master or instructor. And and just in case anyone out there is a bit confused about, like we're not talking about springboard diving here, we're talking about scuba diving. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So scuba diving. So you've got a tank on your back, you've got something called a BCD, which is a buoyancy control device regulators and all the bits and pieces you need to breathe underwater so yes you need to be a scuba diver yeah it takes it takes quite a lot of skill there's a lot of training and getting up to that level and you don't only need to have the level but also quite a lot of experience in varying conditions sometimes we're diving in current the surface conditions might be rough or wavy we usually well we're always really safety conscious so I really like that but in saying that, it doesn't mean that sometimes the conditions won't be challenging. That's nature and it's the environment that we work in. So you definitely need to have a really good awareness of health and safety, the risks involved in working on and under the water. You need to be super fit. You need to really, really be fit because it's very physical and you're doing quite a lot of heavy lifting and lots of kicking underwater as well um the manta toes you're being pulled behind a boat and it's it takes quite a lot of strength in your upper body as well there's a lot of teamwork involved as well so you definitely need to know how to work in a team really well you know if one person was going out randomly on their own each time we wouldn't get much done so we're often working in teams to cover areas effectively qualifications in marine science are definitely handy they're not absolutely necessary but I think from an employment point of view if you have an instructor or a dive master with a marine science background and you're out there doing research they're going to be a lot more valuable than someone without but it doesn't mean that you definitely need it you can certainly train up and learn the research side of things if you're a really good diver then you can kind of make up for it with enthusiasm and effort and willingness to learn everything else so yeah other than that a coxswain or a boat commercial boat driving certificates are really useful and you also definitely need a first aid advanced resuscitation all those kind of qualifications and yeah to maybe know a little bit about data collection research surveying and data entry as well be reasonably savvy with technology so yeah only a few skills <laughs> yeah only a little bit and probably a bit of attention to detail I'm guessing as well and fairly observant to be able to actually spot these little critters yeah absolutely you've got to yeah you've got to kind of cover a large area but also be very on the ball and aware and pretty sharp eyes as well to make sure that you don't miss any how did you end up with this specific set of skills like what is your path to end up being at the point in your career where you get to be towed along behind a boat taking notes on the Great Barrier Reef. So how have you got to where you are now? I started out at university. I did marine science and geography. And when I finished university, I went over 
and worked in Spain for a couple of years in uh, project management and I was doing some ecotourism projects and projected area management work and from there it was a lot of admin and secretarial work and I was stuck behind a computer a lot. I really wanted to be in the water and out in the field so I decided to go and do my dive master and I did my dive master in Tahiti and French Polynesia. That sounds like hard work. Which is a really cool experience. <laughs> yeah, that was really cool. Um, but I saw, I decided to do my dive master because I, the kind of job that I was aspiring to do was community conservation work linked in with research. And a lot of those jobs required a minimum dive master level just like this one requires a minimum dive master level. So I did my dive master, really, really loved diving and being underwater and being with people and seeing these incredible ecosystems every day. And then I decided to also do my instructor course a year or two later on. And then I came back to Australia and started working on the Great Barrier Reef as a dive instructor and marine biologist in tourism on the Great Barrier Reef. So I was working there for a couple of years. And while I was working on the Southern Great Barrier Reef, I became a master reef guide and got involved in the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority's citizen science program that I mentioned before, the Eye on the Reef. So there's certain levels of Eye on the Reef and the Reef Health and Impact Survey that we use for the Crown of Thorns research is just one level of that Eye on the Reef training program so they have different levels the first level is open to the public and absolutely anyone can contribute to it it's called sightings and so if you go out on the reef you might see a whale or you might be snorkeling and see a crown of thorns and you can actually enter that information into an app and it goes directly to the great barrier reef marine park authority they use that to get an understanding of what's where and they can use it for the management of the great barrier reef marine park and that's something we can link to in the show notes. So if people want to contribute, and I'll find some other similar programs uh, that you can contribute to, and I'll put some links on our social media, et cetera, so that you too can be a part of this awesome work. Even if you're not getting paid to do it, you can still make some really valuable contributions. Yeah, absolutely. There are so many citizen science programs out there that everyday people can get involved in and they're great programs to get involved in if you're thinking about a career in science or marine science because they give you an opportunity to collect simple data that's really easy to um, make the observations, record them, submit them to management authorities, for example, who use that information for management. So yeah, it's pretty exciting. And from a participant's point of view, you learn so much more about what you're looking at and what you're doing. You can learn some basic research and data collection skills and uh, also the, the data entry level as well. So, the, And these are great skills to have if you're thinking about a career because you'll have a little bit of experience and exposure to these things already. So yeah, there are basically those few different levels. And on the tourism vessel that I was working, we were using this Eye on the Reef program and we got into recording Crown of Thorns and because I was making submissions to the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority through the Eye on the Reef app, that meant that one of the control vessels, the Crown of Thorns control vessels, was redirected to the, one of the reefs that I was working on. And they contacted 
us or they contacted me as well to kind of chat about where I had seen most of the observations, where I had made them. You put a little GPS marker in when you make the submission and they were able to use that data to go and control the issue. So it's this really cool integrated management system where tourism are working with the management authorities who work with the the research organizations who are actually on the ground controlling the starfish. And that's how I first got involved and ended up on as a research diver on the Crown of Thorns boat. It was through the tourism making those observations of the Crown of Thorns starfish, submitting them through to the Great Bay Reef Marine Park Authority, who then redirected the boat to our reefs. And they came over and had a chat to us, invited us to dive with them. And yeah, it was basically through that, that then actually when COVID hit, um, because of the restrictions of border crossing and things like that, they had some spaces open up and they contacted me to see if uh, I was available to work on the Crown of Thorns boat. And tourism wasn't running at the time so I definitely said yes I would love to be a part of that so yeah that's how that came about quite the path but um looking back you can see how all the all the dots match up to where I am so it's pretty cool. That's a fantastic story and part of it that I really really like is that often tourism can get a bad rap of like tourism is causing all this damage and tourists are bad blah 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 but in this case, the tourism like is actually helping contribute to the well being a better place and the reef being a better place. And well, it's also helped land you another cool job as well, which is really awesome. Yeah, absolutely. You make a really good point. And we do get that often. I think there are operators, tourism operators out there that may not have quite a high regard for the ecosystem and the environment but um, that's one thing that's really wonderful about the master reef guides program as well you can only have a master reef guide if you're from a high standard tourism operator and a high standard tourism operator basically means that you're dedicated to the health of the reef you do ongoing monitoring and submit surveys and you also have um, certain things in place that show that you're committed to the environment as well as you know the of course tourism is a is a business but you're um really have to be committed to the environment and to education and delivering an incredible guest experience as well so this master reef guide program was created really to raise the bar of tourism increase um the motivation and also the spread of tourism companies that are working on the Great Barrier Reef in a sustainable way, focused on the environment and focused also on education and not just bringing people out to a location, throwing them in the water, letting them kick around and kick some coral, get back on and take them home. You know, that's not what it's about at all. It's the complete opposite. So it's really about informing people, educating and inspiring, and also making those contributions and working really closely with the Great Bay Reef Marine Park Authority to ensure that the management of the park is done in a sustainable way that benefits not only tourism, but also the natural resource, which is the reef that it depends on. Without the reef, you don't have any tourism. People aren't going to have much to come and see, so you've got to look after it. Yeah, the two systems should work together quite well. It kind of makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. The next question is always kind of important. So I imagine if there's some young people out there 
having a, and probably some more mature people as well having a listen to your story they might be a little bit inspired and interested in following a similarish career path to yours have you got some advice to any young people out there today who might be interested in trying to end up with your job Ooh, yeah well I think the best advice that I give to anybody and especially to kids these days is just to to do what you love and you know I get so many people that say oh you're a marine biologist that's so cool and I wanted to be a marine biologist when I was little and I just kind of feel like saying to them well what happened you know so and I think when you're a kid or even when you're an adult or a teenager growing up and you say that you want to be a marine biologist I got told countless times that there are no jobs, you won't make any money, all these kind of excuses and these kind of negative responses and reasons why I shouldn't be a marine biologist. So when kids come to me now and they're super enthusiastic and they're really excited and they say, I want to be a marine biologist when I grow up, I just say, you know, the best piece of advice that I can give you is don't let anyone tell you that you can't. (laughs) Go for it, do what you love, um, follow your passion. And I think with passion and enthusiasm, can get you really far. When I was even at the university level, I sometimes had trouble choosing my subjects because I'm thinking, oh, if I want to get a job, I should do data analysis and chemistry and, you know, uh, remote sensing. And although I found all of those subjects really interesting and they're really, really useful for these kind of jobs, I didn't absolutely love them. So I really tried to find that balance between doing all those necessary subjects that are going to get you the jobs, but also just choosing the subjects that you really enjoy, that you're going to get stuck into, that you're going to get enthusiastic and passionate about, and balancing that with the subjects that you'll need to do to have the relevant skills and experience to actually do that work that you really love. So yeah, it's definitely because you can, especially at university, when you've got all this sort of like expectation of you need to do this. And the same thing can happen like towards the end of high school, you've got all these sort of like things you have to do. It's super easy to burn out and just forget why you're there in the first place. And you're there so that it's a bit of a grind. It's a bit of a slog sometimes, but it's so that you can get to the end and end up in an awesome job doing the thing that makes some of those late night assignments and really long essays actually worth it, I reckon. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's so worth it. You know, I think um, my case is a is a pretty good example from the, I guess, academic viewpoint. I was not very strong in, in chemistry and data analysis, but I worked really hard and I stuck it out to do those subjects so that I could have those skills. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to really work hard to to get to that level that you want to that you want to get to but I think it's important to balance it as well and the other thing that's important as well for high school students is I did biology for this uh, senior high school but I didn't do chemistry or the high level of maths that I needed so then when I went to go and do my science degree it didn't mean that I couldn't do science but um, there's always options and ways around different pathways that you can take to get to where you want to get to so if you don't do it at high school maybe you'll do it a little later on Um, I did some extra chemistry and higher level maths courses when I got to university um, to have those skills to then move up the levels as I went so yeah if you're at high school and you don't know what subjects to choose 
don't freak out. There's always a way around it. A hundred percent. You don't necessarily get extra points for getting a hole in one, particularly with couriers. Straight lines are really not a thing. They're a little bit of a myth. You're allowed to make mistakes. You're allowed to try things. And if you continue like doing what we've said, following your passion, balancing that with some of the core skills that you're going to need no matter what, you'll end up getting there. Yeah, absolutely. It's not actually a rush. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's a huge, that's a really important point as well. I think we're taught or made to feel that it's a big rush and, you know, this course is supposed to be a three-year course and you're meant to finish it in three years, but there are so many alternative ways of doing things. And I personally think, looking back, I did a lot of um, like research and extracurricular activities while I was at university. And I think that's, that gave me a lot of skills as much, if not more than the actual study and classes that I was doing. So yeah, branch out and definitely um, do some extra things to learn those skills that you may not necessarily get in your straight classes. You know, get out and join a conservation group or um, citizen science programs. Things like that can really help in terms of getting you on the right path to the career that you want. Definitely. And part of that will be through those sorts of programs. will be picking up hard skills, but it's also developing networks and getting to know the kinds of people that are in the field that you want to head into, understanding if they're your kind of people, all that sort of stuff. It really helps as well. Yeah, you're right. So yeah, getting in there, giving it a go, meeting meeting like-minded people or meeting some mentors as well. Yeah, you make really good points. Yeah. Your career doesn't start just when you actually finish your degree. You can definitely make it start earlier. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So let's just say there's some other people out there who maybe they've already got a job, they've done a degree in something else, but they're listening to you and they're like, yes, you're right. When I was little, I wanted to be a marine biologist and somewhere along the line, I've got distracted. I turned into an accountant. These things happen. Is there any hope for them? Are they able to retrain, maybe do something to contribute maybe even get a job what what's your advice for those people who are like I hope I didn't miss the boat (laughs) literally maybe in this case (laughs) um yeah so I think for yeah for mature age uh, workers or uh, maybe students too I think the best piece of advice that I could give is probably to go and get some hands-on experience so that usually in the field of marine science will be through volunteering um, or yeah getting some work experience somewhere and just offering your time to get the necessary skills that you need the other thing that I would highly recommend is getting into diving so I sometimes think that you know if I had been scuba diving full-time for five years instead of doing my degree I probably could have learned just as much if I was super switched on and kind of, you know, coming back and looking up all the species and doing species ID and understanding why certain things are found in certain places. You know, before they were scientists, they were naturalists and naturalists are really just observers of the natural world. And a lot of the time they would make records and observations and uh, records of those observations. So yeah, just get out there in nature and, you know, try and find ways to gain some skills, meet some people access those things and you might not necessarily need a university degree and you know if you're not very academic there are also always alternative pathways as well so 
a lot of people can do quite similar jobs by becoming a dive instructor and just getting experience on boats and spending lots of time underwater and going via that path as well. So you don't necessarily need to go back to university and study for however many years a course might be. So yeah, just get out there and get your hands dirty, jump in the water, um, you know, meet some people. Yeah, and find opportunities to contribute like through, what was your citizen science program that you recommend? Yeah, so uh, there's the Eye on the Reef and there are so many actually. When I was at university, I was doing Seagrass Watch and I've been involved with Coral Watch as well and the Eye on the Reef, but that's there are not the only citizen science programs. There are so many, um, not just on the Great Barrier Reef, but also along the coastline in you know other connected ecosystems. And yeah, there's lots of programs out there that you can get involved in. Definitely. And I'm thinking you've kind of inspired me and there should definitely be an episode about citizen science programs because like in all aspects of science, there's something out there that you can contribute so yeah absolutely yeah it's gonna need to be its own episode I think yeah (laughs) we could go into it but we might add you know an extra hour onto the (laughs) the podcast episode and that's totally what not what you listeners have signed up for (laughs) wrap it up people no um so being out there on the reef like the reef is I guess quite a delicate ecosystem it's also one that indicates quite rapidly lots of change. Is there anything that you're seeing that we as, you know, broadly land-dwelling creatures might be able to do, maybe some habits that we can change that will make a positive impact for the reef, but also for, like, obviously not everyone has the privilege of living in North Queensland. Uh, Some of us are in slightly colder places any kind of habits and things we could change that will have positive impacts for the oceans more generally? Absolutely. There's so much that everybody can do. You don't have to visit the reef every day to to help it or to contribute. And actually, you can contribute more from your home than you can from actually going out every single day. I strongly, strongly believe that visiting the reef itself is the biggest thing you can do because if you see what it's like underwater, there's no way that you can't have this desire to protect it and to look after it and to want that to be around for your lifetime and your kid's lifetime and well beyond that, you know. So go out and visit it. But for those that might be stuck at home or maybe they're not uh, privileged to go out to the reef every single day or have that kind of opportunity and there's so much that you can do. So the biggest threat to the reef is climate change and climate change starts with the actions on the land. So actually sometimes when the first time I saw a reef bleach, I looked at it and I just felt so helpless because it's in front of me. I can record it. I can report it, but there's nothing that I can physically do at that point in time. It's too late. So actually everything that you're doing or that everybody is doing on land now is so important. So carbon footprint is a huge one to think about. So your carbon footprint is how much of the earth resources that you use on a daily basis. So it could be anything from your electricity consumption, 
to your uh, how you travel and how you move around, whether you're walking, riding, driving, taking public transport, how often you fly places isn't really an option at the moment, but um, how often you take an airplane, they have a really big carbon footprint as well. Um, And also a really big one that not a lot of people think about is diet. And I became vegetarian maybe, I can't remember, maybe five or 10 years ago. Yeah. So I've been vegetarian for quite a while when I learned about how your diet can impact your carbon footprint. So yeah, a lot of people might think that that means that you have to go vegan, but it doesn't necessarily have to be an absolute extreme. So even just by reducing the amount of meat that you consume and also being aware of where your food comes from, how many kilometers it's traveled to get to where you are, what it's wrapped in, whether it's got the polystyrene underneath and the glad wrap over the top because it's cheaper that way. I don't know why the supermarkets do that. I think it's quite ridiculous but um yeah where your food comes from what it's wrapped in and the resources that it took to produce that food and get it to the supermarket get it to your home and get it on your plate so yeah I think we're extremely privileged in the sense that we can eat just about everything and we get food like quinoa was a really good example it comes from South America that travels so far Um, and then there's things like grain-fed beef and they're growing grains to feed cows to feed really rich people that want this quality piece of steak when they could just grow the grains and feed people in poor countries that don't have anything to eat so it becomes this huge ethical issue um, from a human rights point of view but also from an environmental point of view so yeah that was a really strong motivator for me um, to to cut out meat from my diet and uh, think more about my ecological footprint, as well as having gone and seen the reef every day and seeing how incredible it was. So that's a huge motivator too. But yeah, there's so much that you can do from wherever you live in the world, whether it's in Queensland, in Australia, or in Africa or Europe or the Americas, wherever. There's there's just so, so much that you can do. Fantastic. And it's sort of, Although there's definitely some negative things happening this year in 2020, it sort of sounds like that some of the side effects of uh, particularly not being able to travel a lot for those of us in Melbourne needing to stick within like quite a close radius to our homes are like naturally or a side effect of those uh, restrictions is that we're going to be doing beneficial things for the environment. So there's a little like little ray of sunshine there's some positive coming out of some of the challenges that we're experiencing at the moment definitely I think nature is is certainly not complaining (laughs) about the break that it's had from um you know this constant uh, human activity that often can have quite a detrimental impact on it if we you know are are going about our daily lives to the extent that we've been going about them for several decades or even centuries now so yeah I think this is a really welcome break for nature to try and start to regenerate and especially for coral reefs the ability of a coral reef to regenerate and recover from challenges and disturbances is really phenomenal and if you give it the chance to it can but it needs that chance we can't keep going business as usual and expect um, everything to just magically be okay it's really we've really got to you know give it the space and the time that it needs to 
recover and develop that resilience to the challenges that it's facing. Sounds like nature is a lot like people in that respect. Yeah. Have a rough day. Sometimes you need a little bit of a break. Nature's been having a rough day for quite a while. That's it. Time out. Time out. Have have some you time and, and get better. Yeah. Whatever the coral reef equivalent is of a bubble bath and <laughs> a nice a nice book. Maybe some chocolate and ice cream. <laughs> I, d- I don't know what a coral reef equivalent of that would be, but it sounds like it's sort of getting it. <laughs> sure. Maybe lots of plankton and um, less nutrient loads from the coastline. Yeah. Clean water. Aye. Less food. All that runoff. Oh, we're not going to talk about runoff now. We'll get distracted. That's another, um, that's another podcast episode. <laughs> that's another podcast episode. The whole diet thing is in a whole other episode. Um, cool. Have you got a shout out for us? Is there anyone you'd like to say is doing a really particularly awesome job at the moment or you'd just like to give a virtual high five to um, I think virtual high five can definitely go to all the master reef guides on the Great Barrier Reef. Um, I guess they've they've been hit pretty hard by COVID. Um, tourism has been one of the industries that's suffered quite a lot, um, but they're just the most, it's the most incredible program and it's the most incredible group of people that have all come together and they have such diverse skills and experience and knowledge and this unending passion and enthusiasm for the Great Barrier Reef and looking after it and sharing messages with the world. So yeah, high five to every master reef guide out there. I'm going to double that. You guys deserve massive high five for yeah surviving without your tourists coming in. And I would like to give a huge high five to everyone who's getting involved in National Science Week uh, this year, even though we're definitely not having some normal Science Week uh, adventures, there's some really digital stuff happening. And so congratulations to everyone who's running a, a digital event and to everyone who's turning up to those and making National Science Week keep happening, even though we're doing it all virtually. Yeah, that's it. Get out there. Science is so cool. <laughs> yeah, science is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much for joining us, Natalie. It was an absolute pleasure and we might have to pull you back in to discuss some other uh, podcast topics in the future. I will very happily come back. This was really fun. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) My pleasure. I don't know how to finish these things, so I'll just click. If you like our podcast, you're a little ripper. And you should follow us on Instagram at avid underscore research. If you have a question or someone you think we should interview, feel free to drop us an email at avid.coms, C-O-M-M-S, at gmail.com because avid research was already taken. Mm-hmm.